Hey, this is Brent Ingersoll from King's Church. Thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. I pray that this message you're about to hear empowers you, encourages you, challenges you, and equips you to live the life that Jesus has for you. Thanks for tuning in. I was in a conversation last week. Uh, I play basketball on Sunday nights. You, you, you can imagine how amazing I would be at basketball at 40-some years old. And, uh, but uh, I still try to play. And I, I, go, I went on Sunday night, and I was talking to a buddy of mine. We'd subbed off, and we were, because we're the old guys, complaining about some of the missed calls and all the you know, questionable behavior on the court from these youngsters. And uh, he, he said to me, you know, we could, get, we could get better policy in place, but he goes, I've found out you can't legislate integrity. I'm like, you know what? You're right. And, uh, and I said, I, he said, actually, I said, the older I get as a Christian especially, the more and more I, I just know what the world needs is changed hearts, not better laws. And, uh, and he goes, yeah, that's true. But he goes, you know what? He, and I go, I go, that's why I'm a Christian. He goes, yeah, that's true. But he goes, I have found uh, that some of the most hypocritical people in the world are Christians. And uh, he's not a believer. And I, I was like, uh, instantly like, ouch. But also, you know, I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that's been your experience. And uh, I'm definitely sorry if I've contributed to that in any way. He's like, no, no, man, you're good. Uh, but he goes, I've just found that a lot of Christians live lives that are no better than the rest of us. And um, I understood where he was coming from, but what came to mind was not, well, we can do better. What came to mind was, well, that's not the gospel anyway. The gospel isn't about people who can do better. And I said to him, actually, the reason I'm a Christian is precisely because I've realized I'm not a good person and that I can't do it on my own and that I'm not good enough and I need help. That's actually the gospel. And I left that conversation like I've left a lot of conversations in my life, particularly surrounding this idea of being a Christian and what it is that we believe and what the whole gospel of Jesus is all about. And I left there thinking, man, who gave you that idea? That to be a Christian is trying to be a very, very good person. And to the degree you can be a good person is the degree that you're a Christian. That's actually completely counter to the truth of the gospel. Who gave you that idea? And I've, I've had that many times, you know. Uh, I remember one time I sold a lawnmower to a guy, and I, I was telling him as we were loading it onto his trailer, hey, uh, come on out to church, we'd love to have you. And he goes, oh, you're a preacher, are you? He goes, if I went to that church, the walls would cave in. You've heard the sentiment before, I suspect. You know, the place would burn down. And again, I left that conversation thinking, who gave you that idea? It's, it's for the people that the walls would cave in. That's why we're here. We're all that person. Come join us. Hey, one more, room for one more hypocrite. Come on in. Like room for one more hot mess. Like that's why we're Christians. We've realized our need. But I've, I've had it within the church as well. I've had many times at funerals particularly or when people are sort of in those life and death moments, you'll hear this come out. You'll hear well, if anybody deserves to go to heaven, it's so-and-so because they were particularly good. Have you heard that before? Uh, if, if anybody's up there now, it's, it's grandma because she lived a life that was better than the rest. And I get thinking, man, that doesn't sound like the gospel of grace, actually. That sounds like she's justified by her works, not her grace. And when you'll hear it in the church. And, and here's, the, here's the even more convicting thing as I got thinking about this. I, I don't just encounter these false distortions of the gospel in the public or even in the church. I find it in myself a lot. 
I'll find myself adopting behaviors that are indicative of an understanding that is antithetical to the gospel. Like I'll find myself operating in fear and anxiety or I'll find myself operating in condemnation and shame, trying to justify my own vindication and validation. And that's not the gospel, is it? And here's the truth. It's very easy for us as believers the same way that it's easy for people who are non-believers to twist the idea and the truth of the gospel into something that it's not at all. And all of a sudden, our lives become the fruit, not of the gospel of Jesus, but some false, twisted, distorted gospel, and it produces not Jesus-y results. We have to get the gospel right. This is, this is partially what the whole New Testament is all about. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are all accounts of the good news of Jesus. You know what the rest of it is? It's all clarification of what it means. Like all the letters of Paul are correcting distorted gospels. I've been reading through the, the book of Galatians in the mornings right now. And that whole book is like a, a smack to the face of Christians who had lost the point. Like, he's nasty. If he said some of the things, if I said some of the things to you that Paul said to the church in Galatians, there would be nobody here next week. Like, calling them fools. Calling them fools. He said, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ Jesus and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. These are Christians. These are believers. These are people who signed up. I want to follow Jesus. And they're losing the actual centrality of the gospel. He, he goes on later and he says, you know what? I had, to, I had to confront Paul the apostle, or Peter, Peter the apostle, right to his face. Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, had lost the point of the gospel. And it's so easy to happen. And I say all this because I have this sense. This is not just where I'm heading with my message, but I have this sense that there is heat from the Holy Spirit right now in this hour for the church especially us here in the West, that we have got to get our gospel straight. And we have got to get the gospel clear. And it has to start with us and within us before we start projecting it to others. I need to know the gospel. I need to get it straight. So I, I want to just spend a few minutes looking at this story in Matthew chapter 14. It's a famous story. It's a peculiar story but it gives us a snapshot of the Christian life. And I hope that it brings some clarity to you if there's confusion. And I hope it brings encouragement to you if you find yourself in one of these seasons that we're going to highlight. We have been journeying through the gospel of Matthew. It's the good news about Jesus according to a first century tax collector who Jesus called and his life, just like the testimony we heard earlier from Jeremy, was turned around. And he had this whole new life following Jesus. And this was his story of the account of the works and life of Jesus. And we've been journeying through, and we're now smack dab in the middle of the book, and he has been trying to get you and I to see Jesus as the Savior of the world. That's been his purpose. And one thing we know, if you've been around here for a while, we learned this when we went through the book of Revelation, that in first century writing, they set it up a little bit different. In, in our writing or in our movies, our stories, or even in sermons, we usually save the point for somewhere at the end, correct? Like it's the big reveal, it's the big aha moment. But in first century writings, they were built to have the main message in the middle, and so it builds up to the middle, it says the point, and then it continues on from there. And that's exactly what you see here in the Gospel of Matthew. And you see these moments, we saw last week where Jesus feeds the 5,000, these moments of revelation where Matthew is saying, hey, this is who he is. 
And this is what the life of Christ is all about. And I see today, among other things, we could talk about a million things with this passage, but among other things, I see a perfect snapshot of the life of Christ. Let's take a look at it and let's read it verse by verse. It tells us, after the feeding of the 5,000, verse 22, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. So he's telling everybody to go home now that you've ate and you've been satisfied. I'll see you later. He dismissed, the, he dismissed them and the disciples and he goes up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted or beat up by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. That's not normal. And when the disciples saw him on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. So what's going on in this? Let's, let's unpack it for a few minutes. You have the disciples out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee in a boat. Now, the Sea of Galilee is not a sea, as you and I would think of a sea. It is a big, big lake. In fact, some people call it the Lake of Galilee. They had been over on the western side of the lake. Jesus performs this incredible miracle, and then he sends the disciples to cross back over to the eastern side of the lake where he would meet up with them, and Jesus goes off and prays. But we find out that through the night, it had been about morning. In fact, some translations say the third watch, which is somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. That's like the darkest hour of the night, is it not? Nothing good ever happens at 3 a.m. You ever notice that? Like nothing. No one's ever been like, you know what's the best part of my day? No, it's not. And they are out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and they have been rowing and trying to sail across all night. And they have gotten nowhere. They are stuck in the middle. Now, these aren't just regular dudes trying their best to paddle across. Many of the disciples were professional fishermen. They knew the water. It would take a lot for these guys to feel overwhelmed and overcome. That gives you some sense of how gnarly this storm was. Have you ever been in, uh, in, out on a boat, like a fishing boat, with a fisherman? They're a different breed, y'all. Our whole staff last year, we, we chartered two fishing boats and we went out deep sea fishing. 30% of your pastoral staff were puking over the side. It was one of my funnest, fondest days as a pastor. Uh, you know who wasn't sick? The fishermen. They're like, guys, this is, uh, this is just a normal day on the water. That's what's going on here. These guys are overwhelmed, being swamped, buffeted by the wind. In fact, I learned when I was there in Israel, this is a picture I took from the middle of the Sea of Galilee. I learned when I was there, this side is the western, or the eastern, sorry, the western side of the lake, and a little bit beyond those hills is the Mediterranean. So the wind will rip from the Mediterranean. It will come over those mountains, and you can't really see it very well right here, but there's almost these two like valleys, and these act as wind tunnels, and they absolutely create some pretty intense waves on this body of water. They say that waves can get up to about 10 feet high at times if the wind is right. And so this is the scenario that these disciples are in. They are out in the middle and they are terrified. They're so afraid that they're jumpy. They see a figure coming toward them and nobody puts together at first that this could be Jesus. It's one of those moments we're about to die that's obviously a ghost. It's like we're that close 
to, to, to our moment of death. Like we're seeing the, 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 the dead come to us, and yet it's actually Jesus. Now, what is Matthew trying to get us to see? This is the first part of the picture of what it means to be a Christian. Put yourself in the boat with the disciples. You are not confident. You are not capable. You are not feeling good about your odds in this moment. You are completely hopeless, helpless, and have no other option. You are about to go down in flames, or in this case, water. And here you have Jesus coming out to them. Why do I press upon this? Because this is the first marker of what it means to be a Christian. This is the first phase. Our salvation and our followership of Jesus begins with a realization that I need help. Can I say that again? Because that is not a popular message in our day and age. The beginning of the walk with Jesus, the beginning of the life with Christ, the beginning of being a Christian begins with a revelation, a realization. You have a moment where you realize, I'm, I can't do it. I'm not big enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not strong enough, I'm not capable enough. I need a savior. Amen? This is where the life begins. And this goes against the grain of our pride. How many of you are like, I, I know I can do it. Or even the, the mantra of secular, uh, you know, secularization, secular society. What's the mantra? It's if we just get good government, some good ideas, some good will, some good technology, we're gonna be just fine. Is that not the, the story we tell ourselves? Just if we just get the right politician in office. <laughs> if, if, if Elon Musk just builds clean energy for us, if we just solve the global warming problem, if we just, whatever it is, we tell ourselves these lies that we're gonna be all right. You know what? You know the first people uh, to, to just park those delusional lies, it should be the Christian that realizes, you know what? Even on our best day, with our best efforts, with our best inventions and our best tools and our best medicine, we cannot save ourselves. That there is this realization of hopelessness. And the gospel of Jesus, hear me, is for the people who have given up on the dream of self-salvation. We've given up on the promise of us being able to fix and solve our problems if we just get enough money. We just get enough power. We just get enough prestige. We are the people who realize that we are hopeless and helpless. That's the picture. To be a Christian, hear me, is to realize what boat you're in. You're in that boat, stuck in the middle of a stormy sea. You know what the seas represent in the Bible? Chaos. The powers of the elements, the powers of darkness, the, the untamed, chaotic powers in the world. That's what it represents. And you and I were born in that boat. You and I were born in those seas, and those seas were born in us. We are helpless. This is the diagnosis that the Bible gives. If you read your Bible, you did a, you did a snapshot, you will not conclude. Here, you'll conclude two things. One, human beings are infinitely valuable because we've been created in the image of God. Christians are the first people to talk about the value of the human life. However, you will quickly realize that left to ourselves, we are in big trouble. Big trouble. 
You, you'll see that the Bible paints this picture, like right from Genesis 3 on, you just see the, the downward spiral of human hearts and human thinking and human relationships. It just gets gnarly. And you see all through the scripture, it uses language like all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Keyword all. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, Paul says in Ephesians 2. We find in the Bible it reveals that the human heart is broken, that there are parts of us that we cannot fix ourselves. It also tells us that religion has and will continue to fail us as a solution to make us right and make us right with God. It exposes false religions and it even shows, even with true religion, like the Ten Commandments and what God gave to Moses, human beings' inability to actually do it. It becomes a burden, not a blessing, because we're broken. You know, the Ten Commandments are there as an x-ray for you to see and me to see that I need help. There's something broken inside of me. And the Bible makes very clear that hum human beings are incapable of solving the big problems. Like the, the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 is a picture of what happens when human beings partner together with technology and ingenuity. It ends in a crash. And we've seen that throughout the centuries. And just read human history. This isn't even biblical. Just read human history. Empires rise and they what? Yeah, at great cost, with great crashes. And this is what the scripture tells us. One of my favorite theologians was speaking about, in his commentary about Matthew 14 with the walking on water. He, he, he talked about these fishermen with modern technology of their boat. And, he, and he's like, it's a picture of our inability to be able to overcome certain forces in the world. And he said this, in our world, we have discovered so much, learned so much, invented so much, and yet we're still without power to do many of the things that really matter. We've invented wonderful machines for making war, but nobody has yet found one that will make peace. We can put a man on the moon, but we can't put food into hungry stomachs. We can listen to the songs of whales sing on the ocean floor, but we can't hear the crying of human souls in the next street. That's, it's true. And Christians are the people, like your life as a believer, first and foremost, addresses the delusion of self-salvation and realizes I need help. To be a Christian is fundamentally to be someone who recognizes their desperate need for a savior. I need a savior. You need a savior. And I don't care how much money you have in your bank account, how big your retirement is, how much control or power you have, there will come a moment where you, like those disciples, will find yourself overwhelmed by forces that you cannot fix, and you will have to cry out for a savior. There is a counterfeit form of Christianity that's pervasive, where we view Jesus kind of not as a savior, but more of like a self-help sage. That I'm, I'm going, get a little bit of Jesus in my life to help make things better. As though the disciples, instead of calling out to Jesus, they invited him in and said, hey, grab an oar. We're doing fine. There is this tendency in Western Christianity particularly to see Jesus and to see being Christian as a self-help guide, that this is, a, this is a way to the blessed life. And you know what? Jesus will help you and he will teach you and he will guide you, but make no mistake about it, he's a savior. He's come to save you in your helplessness. There is a hands-off moment, a cry for help, and that is where the Christian life begins. And now watch what happens next. I love how, how just descriptive Matthew gets. So Jesus, he's walking on water, and this is an important, this is an important 
important language. It says, shortly before dawn, Jesus, what? Say it with me. Jesus went out to them. He went to them. They didn't get to him. He got to them. This is a picture of the gospel. The gospel of salvation is that while you were in your deepest, darkest, most desperate need, Jesus came. Jesus got to you. He comes where all hope is lost, where chaos is at its, its peak. Here comes Jesus walking on top of it, extending an invitation to salvation. That is the gospel. So it begins with a revelation, and ultimately you, you, you have this moment of realization that I need help, and then it moves into a rescue where you realize that Jesus is the helper, he is the savior that I need. This is where Christianity goes. This is what it means to be a believer of Jesus, that you are saved not by your efforts, not by your works, not by your innate self-worth, not by staying true to yourself, not by living your truth, but by reaching out to a God who came across eternity and condescended his own glory and walked across the waters of chaos, sin, and death, and offers you life. That's the gospel. You did nothing other than say, help, and here he comes. That's the gospel of God's grace. We were in complete need, and God in his kindness and love rescued us. What did he rescue us from? Chaos, the powers, sin, the wages of sin, the wrath of God, hell, death. He rescued us from those things by his life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and his quickly coming again kingdom. He has rescued us. This is different than every other religion. Don't miss this. You, Christians, we have to get the gospel right. Christianity is not four steps to get to God. It's how God took steps to get to you. It is him coming to you out of sheer grace and goodness at extreme cost to himself. Here comes Jesus. Look at the language that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions. Not, as for you, you were doing okay, but Jesus made it a little better. Like the language, you hear the language, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you lived, used to live when you followed the ways of the world. And the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we're by nature deserving of what? Wrath. The question of the gospel isn't fundamentally how could God punish sinners? It's how can he not punish sinners? How can a holy God let sin slide? That's the great question, and on the cross is where he deals with sin and yet offers us mercy fully. It's, 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 it's incredible. We were deserving of wrath, but because of his great what? Love for us. 
God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Not we didn't make ourselves alive. He made us alive with Christ. When we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been, say it like you believe it, saved. I feel to just press in on that. Maybe the church is losing that kind of, yeah, we don't preach hellfire and brimstone, but let's never lose the, the, the word salvation. And, and frankly, if that's what it takes to let us get a grip on just the, the scandal of God's grace and how greatly you and I have been saved, maybe we need to crank up the hellfire a little bit. You're like, please don't. No, just hear me. It is by grace you have been not helped, not made slightly better. You've been saved. You've been saved. Jesus is our Savior. It uh, reminds me of that song, um, It Is Well With My Soul, you know. Christ has regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. Like, that's salvation. That's what he did for you. That's what he did for me. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said, Jesus Christ does not save the worthy, but the unworthy. Your plea must not be righteousness, but guilt. There is no salvation except that which begins and ends with grace. Or the hymn writer who wrote the words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, who saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. At the end of his life, he wrote this, although... My memory's fading. I remember two things very clearly. I'm a great sinner. And Christ is a great Savior. May we not lose that. May we not grow so familiar with being saved by grace that we forget from that from which we've been saved. It starts with a revelation and moves to a rescue. Let's keep going. Are you with me? So Jesus comes out to them walking on the water. And now I want you to notice how the attitude and the atmosphere in the boat changes. Uh, one minute they are beyond all hope. And then the next minute, uh, Jesus comes to them and says, It's me. Don't worry. And then very quickly, it goes from, you know, God save us to, hey, that's cool. Can I try? You notice that? Like, don't, this is a, don't miss this. Like, how, how fast things change. One moment, they're freaking out. And the next moment, Peter goes, hey, cool trick. Can I try? Tell me to come. And Jesus says, come. And then Peter gets down. And he starts walking on the water out to Jesus. This is, this is, I love that this is in here because it does show an important thing that happens when you and I follow Jesus. Like first and foremost, don't miss, like the attitude change. Why did, why did their attitude change so quickly? This wasn't the first time they'd been in stormy seas with Jesus. If you, if you remember earlier on, Matthew chapter eight, they were in a boat with Jesus. Jesus is sleeping and they're about to die and they wake Jesus up and they're like, do you care? And Jesus calms the storm, and their response is, who is this man that even the wind and the waves listen to him? So the moment that they see Jesus, they're like, oh, we're good. The wind calmer's here. So it's going to be fine. He can tell it to stop any moment. So they'd already known that lesson. And so, so Peter's like, well, let's try walking on water then. And he gets out, and he starts walking 
on water. Now things are clicking for him that, that Peter's like, Jesus told me to follow him and maybe he means following him on the cool like trick like that. I'm gonna walk on water. And this is what you see happen. Now, I wanna just highlight this for a second because I think it's important that you know that part of salvation and part of following Jesus isn't just a realization and it's not just a rescue, but there is fundamentally comes a regeneration. That new life and power because of the grace of God comes into your life. I don't know where my word regeneration went. It disappeared, but that should say regeneration right there. Re generation <laughs> that this new rush of life comes into you when you follow Jesus and how many of you can testify to that do you remember you had an encounter with God maybe it was the first time you were saved what happens it's like you're walking on water like those fears that used to make you so anxious you're like I'm not afraid anymore or some of those, those habits that used to sink down into, you're, you're kind of above them. You're not, you're not tempted like you were. Does anybody remember that feeling? Like when you first met, meet Jesus and you realize the love of God and you feel the power of God in your life, it, it has real world, real life, tangible, physiological effects on you. It actually does change you. And this is why this word regeneration matters. This is why, this is how you know somebody's actually saved. It's not because they said, I believe in Jesus. It's because the grace of God got from here to here and here, and it starts affecting your life. And you start seeing yourself operating in a different pattern, in different ways. And this is what you see with Peter. He's, he's walking on water. He's, he's been brought to new life by the grace of Jesus. This is what Paul's saying to, in his letter in Titus. or This is what it says in Titus 3. It says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of our works done but by our righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And this is what happens when you start to follow Jesus. You, you should have a season very early on of this rush of new life. Can anybody testify to that? Like you just, you, all of a sudden you felt like you were doing things you were previously unable to do. And going places you previously could not go. And thinking thoughts. And you were, you, were, you were different in that moment. And that's something that the gospel of Jesus does. That's something that happens to all of us as believers. I won't land on this long, but you need to hear this. There should be tangible effects to the grace of God in your life. Like, like it should affect you. And if you've had no, no hint of change, now I'm not saying, I think it's a, it's, it's a fault in the church to hang the, the standard of perfection over people. We're not called to perfection, we're called to Jesus, but when you come to Jesus, he will change you. You can't stay the same and follow Jesus. Like you just will see change. And that's what comes with following Jesus. I've seen it in my own life and I've seen it in the lives of so many, we have this grace that takes root. The, the grace of Jesus doesn't just save you, it changes you. It changes you. Now, let's, let's, I'm almost done. Let's see what happens next. So Peter's walking on water. I'm grateful that it shows in this story that part of what it means to follow Jesus is not just being saved, it's not just being rescued, but it's also having the rush of God's grace into your life that enables you to do things you could not do before. That is part of following Jesus. But watch what happens next. 
So Peter starts walking out on water, verse 29, verse 30. But when he saw the wind, uh, Mark tells the same story. He says, when he saw the wind and the waves, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him, rescued him all over again, and then says this question, you have little faith, why did you doubt? Now, I am so thankful, and anybody who's been following Jesus for more than a year or three weeks, you should be thankful that this is in here too. In fact, aren't you just thankful that Peter in general is in there? Thanks for taking one for the team, Peter. We all owe you, man. Like, just thanks for being the test pilot, like the crash test dummy that we all get to watch do the exact same things that we all do in our own followership of Jesus. And you see, he gets out and he's doing fine. And then it must have been like he wasn't noticing the wind and then the wind must have cranked up. And all of a sudden he sees the wind and he starts to sink. He's sinking back down into that same old stuff that he was so scared of before. And I think this is important that that is in here. Let me just say this as Someone who's been following Jesus for a while and as a pastor and a shepherd over this church, I am thankful for anybody who comes to Jesus and has the redemption and feels the, feels the rescue and starts walking in new life, but there will come a moment where it seems like that grace just disappeared and all of a sudden the waves just got bigger and you find yourself going under again. It's part of it. I'm so thankful that this is in here, that that. that you know what? You get to see the full scope of the Christian life. It's not all walking on water. There come seasons where the waves get even worse and you find yourself going under again. Has anybody experienced that? Maybe you're in it right now where it just gets raw and real all over again. And yeah, one minute you're walking on water and feeling great and then poof, where'd that go? And those old sins and those old habits and those old thought patterns and those old attitudes and your doubts, and is this even real? It starts to rise up. That is part of the Christian life. And there's a reason for it. I love that Jesus asked this question, why did you doubt? He was not trying to punish him. He was trying to get Peter to look at what's actually inside of him. What would Peter's answer have been? Because I was afraid, right? I saw the wind and I thought I was going to die. I was afraid. And Jesus is like, exactly. We need to root that crap out of you. Sorry, my, he didn't say crap. <laughs> maybe, maybe he did. It's not in the Bible, though. Um, we need to root that out of you. There's fear in you, and, I, and we need to deal with it. And here, here's the next space that you'll find yourself in as a believer. There's a, there's a revelation. There's a rescue. There's a regeneration. And then there is refinement. You'll come into this season where it feels like the heat just got turned up and the wind just got turned up and the waves just got turned up. And I, and I want to just tell the one who's here, and maybe you're new to this, if you're into this season, you're, you're actually not in a strange place or in a place that would, would cause you to say, is this even real? Does God even love me? Is God even there? The Bible makes really clear that this is part of following Jesus and it's actually because he's treating you as his child. Like it says in Hebrews, it says, you know, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Don't make light of it. And don't lose heart when the Lord rebukes you or lets you experience the wind and waves again, lets you feel the weight of the world again. Don't despise it because the Lord disciplines the one he saith. I don't, I don't know who needs to hear that today because you're like, God, do you love me? Look at all this, dis look at all this pain. Look at all these problems I'm going through. Look at the wind and waves. 
And the scripture would tell you that he disciplines the one he loves, that that's actually evidence that he loves you, that he would let you go through things. He chastens everyone he accepts as son. It's evidence of his acceptance. And here's, here's the thing I want to encourage you if you're in this season. It's never fun. I pref- much prefer the mountaintop to the valley. Anybody? Just give me the mountains. Give me all the mountains. But I've, I've learned, you know, I've had incredible encounters with God. I've, I've, I've felt his presence. I've heard his word. I've been overwhelmed and overcome. I've been blessed in ways I never could have imagined. I've seen things and gone places, and God has been so good to me. But the most transformational moments in my life have happened in the dark. It's been in the valleys. It's been in the storms. Because it's in those places that as the layers are peeled back and the pretenses peel back or even the grace of God that is enabling you to do things that in your own strength you can't do is peeled back, you realize what's still in there. And God brings it out. Peter had a fear problem. And you know what? It persisted. There was multiple occurrences where God exposed his fear. But it's in those moments and in those places where he wants to refine us and wants to give us a deeper revelation of who he is, a firmer grip on his hand, Jesus reached out and grabbed him. Deeper conviction about the salvation you and I have been given. He will test your faith. I just feel to, to, like there's somebody here, I just feel like maybe you're at one of the locations today and you're in a season where you're like, God, where are you? What is this? Why can I feel the wind and the waves? Do not quit and do not despair because he is doing something in you. And I have found, and I know many of you can testify, these are the times and the places where you are most shaped into his likeness. Like it says, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, he says that we are being transformed into his image from glory to ever-increasing glory. Two things you should realize in that. One, God is utterly committed to make us like Jesus. And he will, he will place our character over our comfort all day long. He is utterly committed. We are being transformed into his image from glory to ever-increasing glory. Transformation, here's the other thing that I should tell you, is a process. It doesn't happen all at once. It's day by day, month by month, year by year, decade by decade. Revelation after revelation, refinement after refinement, renewal and regeneration. This is the life of the Christian, and it's not going to stop. This is how God leads his followers. This is how Jesus saves. He transforms us from glory to ever-increasing glory. My, one of my mentors, we had him here for the XY Men's Conference. You know, he said it, talked about asking God for more of him. And Pastor Kevin Myers, he said, God told me, he said, if you want more of me, you have to be more like me. And so I'm gonna take you into places that shape you. And it might not be comfortable, but it's going to, in the end, result in more joy more life, more glory, more mercy, more meaning. That's what he does. And I've found that. Anybody found that to be true? Like you go through these seasons, it's like God digs more junk out of you so that he can pour more of himself into you. And so just be encouraged today. If you're in that season of hardship, if you do not give up, says in Galatians, if you don't grow weary in doing what is good, 
for at just the right time you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. Can I just, I, I have seen so many people come into our church and have a genuine encounter with Jesus, experience his grace. They come to CR, they're getting freedom from addiction, or they come to Alpha, they got the answers to the tough questions they were looking for, and they're walking, and then this season of testing hits them, and it's like no one told them, or no one prepared them, or, or maybe they never heard it from the pulpit, forgive me if that's true, but no one told them, and then all of a sudden, it's that, that power and that feeling is no longer there, and they think, I'm in some strange place, and they fall away. But if you will just trust him through that moment, let your roots grow down deeper. He will do a new work, and he will bring you to renewal. Let's, let's end with this. Ultimately, where is God leading you? To regeneration, refinement, and then a deeper work of his glory and goodness in your life. Renewal. Renewal. Look, look what happens. Let me, let me close with this. I'm, I'm going to pray in just a second. I think this is important. I think Matthew put this here for us for a reason. It says, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, so picture Jesus and Peter now walking the rest of the way to the boat. They, they hop in, and then something happens that up to this point has never happened. This is, this is key. It says, then those who were in the boat worshipped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. Now, why did Matthew put that in there? Well, one, this is, this is the first time that the disciples have worshipped him. But more importantly, it represents a change in them. Matthew 8, Jesus calms the storm. What was their response? Who is this guy? Who is this? Who is this man? that even the wind and the waves listen to him. But now after this storm and this revelation of their own inadequacy and this rescue by Jesus and this regeneration and this moment of refinement, now their claim is not Jesus is just a really great and powerful man. It's you truly are the son of God. Like Jesus became more to them in that moment. And this is ultimately where he is trying to, to lead you and I, that, that he becomes more to us, that as he becomes greater, as he increases, the life from him, the glory and the mercy from him increases in us. This is what Jesus is ultimately leading us to. The wind and the waves led to worship, led to a fresh revelation they went from being overwhelmed by the storm to being overwhelmed by the goodness and greatness of Jesus. That's the Christian life. And I guarantee that every single one of you, actually, even those of you who aren't a believer yet, are in that boat. You might be a, a non-believer, still doing your best to paddle. Can I just say, Godspeed? Like, there's going to come a moment where you come to grips with your own mortality and your own inadequacy. Call on Jesus. For the rest of us that have already called on Jesus and experienced his rescue, how many know his salvation continues to go and grow in us day by day? And you might be on the highest mountain, or you might be in the valley, but here, here's the thing I would encourage you with as I pray. 
whatever season or phase you are in, the invitation and the solution is the same. It is to fix your eyes on Jesus. Like just, just focus on him in your season and in your circumstance and in your scenario. If you are in a moment of helplessness, turn to Jesus. If you are in a moment of rescue and grace, focus on Jesus. If you're walking on water and you are doing things you never thought possible, praise Jesus and focus on Jesus. If you are sinking in doubt and fear, focus on, yes, if you're in a season of renewal, focus on Jesus. The, the, the job of the Christian, the Christian life is summed up ultimately in we are people who have chosen to turn our eyes, turn our minds, turn our hearts, turn our past, turn our present, turn our future over to King Jesus and trust him with it. That's it. And somewhere in that mystery, he forgives us even though we don't deserve it. And somewhere in that mystery, he transforms us and he does make us different. And we should want to be different. And somewhere in that mystery, he's going to take us on forever and ever and ever into ever-increasing glory and joy. That is what we believe. Amen? Would you stand to your feet? I want to pray for you. Let me read this scripture over us. Hebrews 12. This is one, if you're a new Christian and you want to memorize a scripture, I can't encourage you enough to try to memorize these three verses. It says, therefore, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. People who have done it, you're not alone. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on, Jesus. come on, say his name, fixing our eyes on, Jesus. yeah, the pioneer, the author, the, the beginner and perfecter of our faith. He's gonna start it and he's gonna finish it. Take hope in that if you're in the valley today. Faithful is the one who calls you and he will do it. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. God finishes what he starts. Come on, somebody. God finishes what he starts. And God is faithful to his word. Come on, there's some parents in here right now that you have seeds planted in your kids. God is faithful to his word and those seeds will not return void. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider, think about him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Father, help us consider Jesus today. Help us to consider Jesus tonight. Help us to consider Jesus tomorrow. Holy Spirit, would you uh, remind our hearts how greatly we have been saved, how amazing is your grace, how faithful is your presence, how able is your power to do what we can't do for ourselves. So Father, even in this moment, we just like recommit our hearts and our minds and our lives to you from whatever place we are in life, on the mountain or in the valley, at the beginning of life or near the end of life, who knows? Lord, we just say we choose to turn our hearts and our hope and our lives over to you, Jesus, trusting you for your salvation. Maybe you're here today and you want to put your faith in Jesus. Just It's as simple as a prayer. Jesus, help. Jesus, save me. Father, we thank you just for the sweet sense of your presence here today.
Lord, renew us. Convince us of the good news of Jesus like never before and let us live unashamed of the gospel for his power, the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. We thank you and we praise you. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen.